Good morning, St Andrews. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your clear and present word to us, a word from centuries ago, and yet a word that speaks right to the heart of our time, the hour in which we live. We pray, Father, that you would humble us, that we may hear the word of our God and King, that we may hear not just of our hour, but of the last hour and how this world and its history will play out and how your kingdom will reign forever. Give us humility before your word to hear that, to trust it, and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we enter Daniel chapter 7. Today, Daniel chapter 7, well worth having that open in front of you. There was an outline that was sent out during the week. If that's helpful, please have that with you. Let me begin with this quote uh, from one of my favourite theologians, Helmut Tillicke, who said this, He who owns the last hour need not fear the next. He who owns the last hour need not fear the next hour. There is great comfort and strength and wisdom in knowing how the last hour of this world will play out and know that that strength and wisdom is not in us. We can't work it out for ourselves. No study of history or science or grasp of the future can work it out. But God in his kindness and in his grace to us by his word unveils the details of that last hour of our world. In fact, we're told here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, what we have in front of us is the end of the matter, how the end of the matter of this world and its history will play out. In fact, Daniel chapter 7, all the way through to chapter 12, this second half of the book that we enter together this morning is written to show us how the last hour will play out, that, that we may know it, that we may be clear on it, so that we may understand how to live in the hour in which we are called to live. And it's going to do that for us in the same way it did it for Daniel and God's people in the sixth century when this book was set. Uh, it's describing for them the years that, uh, that they're living in and the years to come that will follow and the series of kingdoms that will come to show them how that will play out, to give them clarity about that so that they need not be unaware or fearful about it, to give them comfort despite what's coming and courage despite what's coming. Because essentially what Daniel is told and what he's shown in this vision is that it'll actually be really tough to live as one who knows and trusts that God is king in a world of a series of kingdoms that will come upon God's people. Daniel 7 reveals this series of kingdoms in a dream. It's much like the dream that we saw back in Daniel chapter 2 with its series of kingdoms. Uh, they are really, in one sense, uh, their first point really is to show us the series of kingdoms that followed from the 6th century. There's two different readings of Daniel, and we'll see more of this as we go along. There's a reading that says this is a retelling of that history that from the 6th century onwards to the 2nd or the more common and the traditional view, which is the way we are approaching it here, is that this is a foretelling. God is showing his people what may, must come so that they may be clear about it, that they may be comforted, that God is still king through it, and so they may be courageous to trust him as king. And so what Daniel and God's people in the sixth century have shown is a series of kingdoms that are going to come upon them, that, uh, kingdoms in which it will be hard to trust God as king. And they're depicted as four animals. Do you see them there from verse 4? First, there will be the lion kingdom. Uh, and 
Most uh, biblical scholars uh, point to Babylon when it comes to the Lion Kingdom. And the reason they do that is uh, because regularly Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was linked with the animal of the lion. But more than that, do you notice here that this, this kingdom, uh, the, the lion will eventually be placed on two feet and given the heart of a human, it will become more human over time. And, and in many ways, that's a picture of the restoration we saw, we saw for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember in chapter four, when he descended to subhuman beastly nature and was eventually restored through repentance and faith. That's the picture of this kingdom. But after the Babylonian Empire, and we're right near the end of it here in this vision, we're told it's in the time of Belshazzar's rule, then will come the bear. And uh, many link the bear with the Persian Empire. We're told at this point it's poised, ready to devour more nations. Uh, and that's exactly the, the point in history where, where Daniel is at. They're at the gate, ready to conquer Belshazzar. Already it's got three ribs in its mouth. It's conquered other nations in the lead up to Babylon, but there'll be more including Babylon. And then we're told the next kingdom after that will be the leopard, a kingdom of great power and uh, speed. And uh, that's a picture of the Greek empire and the rapid conquest of Alexander the Great, who basically conquered the known world by his mid-20s. And then finally, we come to a a fourth beast, which is, a, a, well, in one sense, a series of empires that follow the Greek empire, the split of the Greek empire and then the Roman empire itself. And it's a beast not linked to any particular animal because it's just so beastly that, well, it's like nothing before it. And its power is immense. Ten horns are used to depict that. Incredible power, incredible fear and violence. But these beastly kingdoms, and we'll see more of them as we go into chapter eight and beyond, don't just represent these four kingdoms that followed for Daniel. They're depicted in such a way to essentially show us the, the chain of human rule and human history that will come up to the last hour, up to the end of this world. They really represent, as we'll see as we go into this vision, all human rule that sets itself up against God, whether that be nations or whether that be individuals that choose self-rule, that reject God's rule. All sorts of kingdoms and rulers have been identified with the pictures in this chapter. You can find books which would pinpoint all sorts of moments in history. That's America, that's Russia, that's Iraq, that's Syria, that's North Korea, that's Australia, that's the United Nations, that's whatever it is. All sorts of uh, predictions and guesses are made. But let me encourage you as we look at it together, don't get distracted in playing the guess the picture game. The goal is a bit like a, uh, a, a larger picture is to step back and see the big vision that God is setting before us here. And here's what he is showing Daniel. And here's what he is showing God's people then. And he is showing God's people now this morning as we look at this together. Two visions are within this vision. It's a vision of our world and the kingdoms of this world and how they, how they behave. And then it's also a vision of heaven and the kingdom of heaven and how it behaves. They're the two visions. And if we're clear on that, we'll be clear on how to live in the hour that we live in as we wait for the last hour. This will give us clarity, it will give us comfort, and it will give us courage. So let's look at it together. Firstly, verses one to eight, a vision of our world. And a few things to pick up about this vision as we look at these different animals. Firstly, it's a place of, uh, as God views our world, he views it as a place of chaos and disorder. 
the dream that Daniel receives begins with the world in the eye of a storm, winds from all the corners of the world and they're churning up the sea. The sea is this great whirlpool. It's sort of pulling things under and it's spitting things out. It's utter chaos. And, and the sea was a, a picture in, in the ancient times for chaos, a place of powers uh, and forces far too strong for us a place of disorder and chaos. And that's the picture that God gives of a world disconnected from him. It is a place of forces that are far too strong for us, a place of disorder, a place of chaos. But it's important as we read the Bible to know that it, it wasn't always so. That wasn't always God's view of our world. You remember Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2, it depicts the created world as a place of peace and order a place where God's people dwelled under God's good rule in his good place. And it was, in his words, very good. That was his vision of the world. But you only need to go as far as Genesis 3 to see one of the early hours of our world. All of that spins out of control. God's good creation is ruptured by our rejection of God as king. As, as that relationship gets disordered, all else spins into chaos. That's true of every hour from the hour of Genesis 3 onwards. It's true of our hour that we live in. Our world is no less disordered, is it? As you think of the created order, this is 2020 should tell us how little control we have of the forces at play in our world. Uh, we started the year with uh, horrific bushfires that, you know, even, even this week, they seem to be starting again. And then we're in the grip of a, a pandemic that we're, we, we think we're getting in control of, but it, it keeps slipping out of our grasp. Uh, it's a place of disorder. It's a place of forces too strong for us. But here's the second picture we have in this vision of our world. It's also a place of inhumanity. That's what these beasts, these kingdoms depict. You notice none of them are actually human. This disorder of our world also includes a disorder in humanity. Man and woman made in God's image are in his view now disordered. We are subhuman, inhuman, because we are not in right relationship with him. And so these four beasts reflect that. They reflect disordered human rule, attempting to live as self-ruling creatures in this world that God created, uh, living lined up against God, set up against God. The half-human lion, we see, the ravenous bear, the fast and aggressive leopard. Uh, Daniel is stunned by the power of human rule as it played out in this vision. And, and then things, verse 7, reach the climax with this fourth beast, unlike anything he's seen before or any, anyone has seen before. You can't pinpoint it. You can't say, well, nothing like it has, has been before. Put yourself in Daniel's head for a minute. You see this vision after these first three beasts and this one comes out, this beast emerging out of the chaos of the water, pour, water sort of pouring off its back and what a back. It's full of horns, of all depicting its power and its aggressiveness. And then out of its flesh comes another horn, we're told, a little one, tiny little horn, but it's not weak. In fact, it uproots three other horns straight away and it's shouting boastful words. It's shouting aggressive, proud words in God's world. We'll see more about the horn next week. But these are alarming images, aren't they, that are given to us and given to Daniel. But it's important to say that they're not unfamiliar. Uh, we've seen this sort of humanity 
And it's important to say that that is what God sees when he looks at us and he looks at our world, our kingdoms, our history, our governments, our claim to rule our own life. He sees inhumanity. That is not what we were created for. It is subhuman. It is beastly in his mind. And we can see this inhumanity even in our own hour. Yes, we can see it in the nations and the rulers of our time, can't we? You could name many, I'm sure, around our world. But we also see it personally as well, beastly inhuman behaviour that we are capable of from the boring and banal, like the, the sort of reaction some have to the pandemic restrictions as if it's you're going to tell me what to do. This, this sort of aggressive exertion of our own self-rule. No, I'll do what I want. It's inhuman, isn't it? Well, the abject greed that leads to ever-increasing gaps between rich and poor in our world, another sign of inhumanity. When God looks at our world, he sees this beastliness. All too often, he sees our inhumanity in the way we treat each other and definitely in the way we relate to him. And so it's a place of disorder. It's a place of inhumanity. But thirdly, I wonder if you caught a glimpse of this in the vision. It's a place with glimpses of what could have been. Uh, the first beast you see that with. Uh, yes, he's a lion, but he's made to stand on his two feet. He's made more human and he's given the heart of a human. There are moments where that heart shows itself and true, uh, all man-centred man rule like King Nebuchadnezzar often rules rejecting God's rule over it. But there are moments, aren't there, in our world, moments where we see humans living out their role as image bearers of God, living out God's character in the world. And again, we see it in our own hour, glimpses of humanity bearing God's image. Uh, look, at, look for these glimpses in our world. See them, celebrate them, thank God for them. Thank God for the fact that while there's, for instance, something as banal as just the way we respond to the pandemic restrictions, yes, there is that exertion of self-rule and pride and no one tells me what to do, but uh, so many wonderful signs of our ability to care for one another and to do what will be good for one another. There are these glimpses in our world of what could have been, what we were made to be under God's good rule. We're not to miss those. We're to thank God for them. But beyond the glimpses, that we should celebrate beyond them. Daniel 7 says the overwhelming sight and sound of this vision is loud defiance against God. And that is depicted by this little horn shouting its prideful words, talking a big game in verses 8 and 9. And so as that vision reaches its noisy climax, uh, we turn in verse 9 to the second vision that comes into view. It's the vision of heaven and its kingdom. You see, just as human or inhuman rule is at its most loud and proud in this vision, as the horn is shouting out its words, the parade is stopped. And Daniel looks and a series of thrones are set in place. You can imagine it as this little horn is just shouting out its words behind it. A whole series of thrones are lined up. It, it seems oblivious to what's happening behind it. And all the pride stops. All the waves are stilled and all the beasts, apart from this little horn, are becalmed. And now in the place of disorder and chaos, order and dignity hold court. You see it there in verse 9, this little horn shouting its words, but behind it, this is happening. Thrones were set into place. 
I love these words. Look at this. This is a picture of our God. Thrones were set into place. This is what he's doing in history. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The the hair of his head was white like wool and his throne was flaming with fire and wheels were all ablaze and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him and thousands upon thousands attended him. And this little horn is sitting there shouting in front of him, missing all this. 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him and the court is seated and the books are open. It's awesome, isn't it? Behold your God as he really is, not as he's often depicted in our world, not even as we might have boxed him and and compartmentalised him in our lives. He is awesome. He's the ancient of days before whom 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him in awe. It's a vision that's picked up in the last book of the Bible as it speaks of the last hour and how this world will play out. Revelation chapter 4 picks up the same themes. It says this, speaking of God's throne, it says, surrounding the throne were, were 24 other thrones and they were all dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads and the throne of God came from it, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne there was what looked like, how's this, a sea like glass and crystal clear, the chaos of the sea, the the tumult, the whirlwind, all of it is gone, it's calm, it's like glass as the Ancient of Days takes his throne. Power and majesty and calm instead of chaos. Isn't this brilliant? Verse 10, we see that this throne that the Ancient of Days, our God, sits on is actually a courtroom. He's in the judgment seat. And we're told the books are opened. What are these books? Well, the Bible talks about different books. It talks about in Psalm 69, the book of life, those that God will give eternal life to, those that he gives righteousness to. They are named in his book. He will not forget them. People like Daniel, people like his church, they are written in this book. And on that day, that book will be opened. And then there's this, the book of remembrance in Psalm 56, a brilliant psalm, well worth reading, Psalm 56. It says it's a book that has recorded in it all the tears, all the injustices, all the sadnesses, all the grievances of this world. None of it is forgotten before the judge. All of it is recorded and he will open it and he will judge fairly. Behold our God as he is in control, utterly in control. He's not blind to history. He's not asleep. He's not powerless as this little horn of human pride and power shouts out its abuse. He will judge. He will judge any who live not under his rule. He will bring the chaos of this world to an end. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for the chaos and the unpredictability and the forces that are too strong for us and the the inhumanity and injustice of this world to come to an end? Don't you want it to come to an end? You know, not everyone does. I was struck this week by a quote by a a famous atheist who who passed away just a few years ago, Christopher Hitchens, and and I think he nails perfectly what the Christian gospel is all about when it talks about the last things. He said this, what I find repulsive about Christianity is that it wants this world to come to an end. Whenever you read any of its genuine scriptures, you, you can tell that there's this yearning for things to be over. Uh, it's an interesting quote and in the context of it, he says it very much as a criticism and why he's so opposed to Christianity. Uh, he sees that uh, Christianity is an anti, anti the humanist project. And so I want to say with Daniel 7, I want to say to this quote, Christopher, a wholeheartedly, yes, I want it to end. 
and so does God. With all my heart, I long for it to end. And don't you want the inhumanity of this world to end? Don't you want an end to the cancer of racism that we have seen writ large in our world this year? Don't you want an end to abject selfishness? Don't you want an end to the wrongs that slip through the grip of our human justice systems that shouldn't slip through that grip, but they do? Don't you want them to be held to account? Don't you want an end to decay and disease and forces that are too strong for us and, and show us the fragility of our own bodies? Don't you want that to end? Daniel 7 says, if you think that a future human kingdom, whether it be the bear or the leopard or the lion or the, this beastly horn, whatever it is, uh, any human project is our hope for these things to end, we are not learning from history. But as we see the Ancient of Days coming to hold court, there is a noise in the background still. Verse 11, still there, this little horn still shouting out its proud words from its tiny little mouth, but then in a moment it stops. All the boastful rebellion ends. The beast is slain and it is thrown into a fire. We're told the other beasts, other human power is stripped of authority and will be allowed to live for a time and we feel that, don't we? The presence of inhumanity still with us, still recognisable, but only for a time. Heaven will not allow any humanity or injustice to last ultimately in this world. None of it will be forgotten. All of it will be held to account. But the problem, of course, with that hope is this. If God is going to judge all humanity, he is going to judge us, our inhumanity our beastliness, to long for God to bring that to an end is to ask him to deal with us. And so what hope is there for proud little horns like you and me? Well, it's the hope that this book has held out all along, the hope it held out to Nebuchadnezzar and it held out to Belshazzar in chapter five, it held out to us, surrender, trust the King of heaven. And that's where the vision goes next. We see that heaven is not just a place that brings order, it's a place that brings humanity. Daniel's attention is grabbed by this amazing sight of the ancient of days, but something even more amazing now comes into view. Do you see there verse 13? Not a beast this time, but one like, well, well, like a human. That's what he's like. But not a human from this world. We see he comes from the clouds, he comes from heaven. He's not out of the chaos, he comes from heaven. He's the son of man. The human, the perfect human, and boldly he approaches the courtroom and he, he's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, but he has no fear of being led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Who would dare enter like that? Well, you see who would dare. It's the one who the Ancient of Days gives authority and glory and sovereign power over all things. It's the one before whom all peoples and all nations will bow and worship. Here we have a human being in the image of God and yet at the same time, one who is from heaven, who rules as humanity was meant to rule. Instead of chaos, he brings order. Instead of beastliness, he brings humanity. Instead of ruling for a time, he will rule for eternity. And instead of seizing the kingdom, it's given to him by the Ancient of Days. And instead of that kingdom being contended by the Ancient of Days, it is endorsed. This is the hour that has been longed for since that first man, Adam, and that first woman, Eve, acted inhumanely by choosing to reject God's good rule. Here at last is one who rules well. Here at last is one who is alone worthy to stand before the ancient of days. And so behold the man, 
that Daniel saw so many years ago. It's the man actually revealed to us in Mark chapter 8. Listen to this as Jesus describes himself. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea. And on the way, he asked them, uh, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the king. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the, here it is, son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. But after that, he will rise again after three days. Jesus is the man Daniel saw in the vision coming before the Ancient of Days, the, the Son of Man who rules as God would have him do. A, a rule described this way. You remember this verse in Mark 10? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his humanity. Jesus is the man Daniel sees in his vision, the Son of Man who gives his life for many, but then has the power to take it up again because no one can take his life from him. And he's given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the king. He's our hope. You know, Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter Hitchens, who's a Christian man, uh, once said this on Australian TV on Q&A. He said this, the most dangerous idea in human history remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the son of man and that he rose from the dead. It, it turns this universe, how's this for a picture of Daniel 7, this universe from a meaningless chaos into a design place where there is justice and where there is hope. And as we close, here is the hope that is ours because of heaven and the man who came from heaven. Heaven's man brings the hope of forgiveness to a world like ours. It means that you and I can approach the throne of the Ancient of Days without fear, not because of ourselves, but because by faith, Colossians 3 says you can be hidden in Christ, hidden in his humanity. He takes the penalty for our humanity. We are hidden in his humanity, his perfect obedience. This should humble you. Christian, this should humble you. You are no better at being a human than an unbeliever. You're just a forgiven human, a hidden human. Secondly, heaven's man shares his kingdom with you. We're told that as the second half of Daniel 7 goes on, we're told that the son of man will share this eternal kingdom. You see it there, verse 18? but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom with him and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. That's our hope because of the man of heaven. And then finally this, heaven's man gives us now a better word to speak to our world. That's what our church is about. We live in a world that only knows half the story of history. A story which this half says is out of control and chaotic and yes, often inhuman a story where fear and terror are now bywords. We only get glimpses of what could have been in this world. Don't you want that to end? The Bible says the only way is to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, Christopher Hitchens once said this, faith, he's talking about faith in God, is surrender of the mind, surrender of reason, it's surrender of the only thing. How's this? Think about this in the context of Daniel 7. Surrender of the only thing that makes us different from the animals. Actually, Christopher, the opposite is true. It is our only hope of rescue from our own proud, rebellious inhumanity is to repent and believe and surrender before the Son of Man. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness to us. We see how history will play out because you have shown us. We see the Son of Man coming before your throne and given power and authority. We thank you that he takes our inhumanity, pays the penalty for that, and we get to share in his humanity, his righteousness before you. And so, Father, we pray that we would know the forgiveness that the Son of Man offers, that we would know our share in his kingdom and that we would speak this better word to our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.